Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Life of a Song. This is a special episode to celebrate the publication of a book based on columns in the series. I'm Ludovic Hunter-Tilney, the FT's pop critic, and I'm joined by two FT pop writers, David Cheel. Hello. And Helen Brown. Hi. David, you commissioned The Life of a Song series. Tell me about this book that we've had produced of the series. Well, for about two and a half years now, the FT Weekend has been publishing a weekly series called The Life of a Song, in which every week there's a different song. It tells the biography, the story of the song, how it was written, the sort of social times that it fell into, and how it was subsequently covered and treated, or sometimes mistreated. And this book is a compilation of 50 of those columns, a kind of greatest hits compilation, if you like, and it comes out uh, later this month. And it ranges across all styles of music, doesn't it? All styles of music and all eras as well. Some of the songs go back several centuries. And today, to give uh, listeners who may not be familiar with the series a sort of sense of its flavour, we will be talking about four of the songs that are included in the book. These are the songs that shook the world, is how we are titling them. Each of these songs has made an impact in their own way. Some have been uh, have made a very dramatic and immediate impact, have sort of gripped people's attentions and imaginations. Others have sort of filtered into popular consciousness over time and have become suddenly part of the sort of uh, musical landscape in people's lives. Others have actually made a completely wrong impression, or at least not the impression that their songwriter mm. intended. And uh, we're going to start with uh, a song that you wrote about, David. That's right. You begin your column on this song with the words, Can a pop song change the world? The song in question is David Bowie's Starman, released in 1972. There's a star. So this song was a big hit for Bowie in 1972 and made a very dramatic impression, didn't it, David? Uh, I believe on yourself too. It did, yes. Mm -hmm. It was David Bowie's breakthrough hit. But for me personally, and I think from what I've gathered for a lot of other people, I remember vividly watching him on the BBC's Top of the Pops and seeing this sort of androgynous, bako-foil-clad, otherworldly creature And you could sort of sense newspapers being rustled with disapproval by parents up and down the country while their offspring looked on in sort of amazement. Were you in the room with your parents? I was, yes. (laughs) yes. And there was this sort of sense of otherness that there are others who are other. And it was a sort of a striking moment of realisation that boys and girls, there were people who were in between and Bowie looked like that. And there was a moment when 
David Bowie draped his arm around his guitarist Mick Ronson's shoulder, and it wasn't a sort of a blokey, chappy, chummy sort of drape. It was quite feminine the way he sort of just rested his fingers very gently on his on Ronson's shoulders, and that again just sort of spoke of um, you know a different kind of relationship between two men. This um, has become a sort of very storied episode, hasn't it, in British music? That this has, one yeah. moment is yeah. there are certain dates which really sort of leap out at one as when everything yeah. seems to the earth on its fulcrum seems to turn around yeah. and do you think that that really was the case in terms of the music that followed on from there musically it's not a terribly outrageous song it's a it's a fairly conventional pop song although it's it's a sensationally catchy one i think what sort of struck people i mean there's a lot of people like neil tennant of the pet shop boys holly johnson of frankie goes to hollywood and also people like fashion designers who all trace their sort of you know development back to this key moment it's a pop cultural historical moment and not just a pop moment the song came out i mean before the top of the pops appearance i mean he you know he toured it in february the top of the pops appearance doesn't happen till july it is about that television performance and there's yeah. a moment before bowie went on stage where he's queuing up in the corridor and he's opposite status quo and they're all still in there full-on denim <laughs> and francis rossi just takes one look at these spectacular quilted jumpsuits and you know says you make us feel old. <laughs> it's that whole key shift. And mm. so looking at the song itself, I mean, the story it's telling. Tell us something, David, about what the song is actually about in terms of the persona that Bowie created here. He'd taken on the persona of Ziggy Stardust. And the song is really about this sort of guy who's going to come down from the sky and basically kind of save us, I guess, from ourselves. There's a musical motif in there, which you'll also hear in Wichita Lineman, which is this sort of Morse code thing that comes in in the chorus, which is sort of signifying some kind of message going out or message being received. And the, the life of this particular song, I mean, it changed the course of Bowie's career, didn't it? Yeah. And sort of yeah. launched him then onto a phase of, of uh, very great success. Very much into the mainstream. Yeah. And, and also it was the beginning of kind of that self-created individual pop star, wasn't it? I mean, he said, I'm an instant superstar, just add water and stir. You know, he was really struggling for three years. He wasn't getting music out. He wasn't, things weren't happening for him. And he really went all out to create the self-image, which is what you then end up with people like Madonna constantly reinventing themselves and doing. Mm. So, he, you know, he was the first guy to kind of consciously do that, to create something, to send his fashion designer off to Liberty and say, I want these suits, I want this makeup. Mick Ronson didn't even want to wear the outfits. He stormed off and had to be talked around by the drummer into wearing all this gear. <laughs> and evidently, this is an example of a song that can actually change everything for an individual in so much it was, it was written. I believe that the album lacked anything that the record label thought they could release as a single. So then he went away and wrote this That's as right. the single. Yeah. So there's something within a song itself when it can capture everyone's attention yeah. and mm. can suddenly spread out. I mean, we saw it more recently with songs such as Shape of You, the Sheeran song, yeah. which suddenly seems to be everywhere. Yeah. Mm. You can't escape it. This song, 45 years ago, where Top of the Pops would have been the way in which suddenly it's there, whereas it's now, of course... It's branding, mission statement. Yeah. It's the whole thing, isn't it? Shabam. But, <laughs> do you think, Helen, that that sort of drama can be achieved nowadays when we have so, so many different ways in which a song can be placed out towards its audience, for its audience. I mean, we don't have any single medium which is going. To, everyone's going to go and tune into. I mean, they're trying, aren't they? So you've got stars like Jay-Z and Beyonce who will do those sudden secret... I mean, even Bowie surprised us with his last album dropped on his birthday and people didn't know that was coming. Artists are still trying to create that sense of event, that sense of moment. You can only hear it this way. You can only listen to Jay-Z on Tidal or whatever. They're still trying to create it, but I think it's increasingly difficult. Yeah. You're not going to get kids like, you know, like the day after Top of the Pops 
going into school saying, you know, God, did you see that David Bowie on on top of the pops last night? And I have to say that quite a few of my schoolmates were kind of horrified as, rather than amazed because of the kind of rampant homophobia of, of the time. And David, further versions of the song, tell us about how the song then, having established itself so dramatically, has it continued? Did it continue a dramatic course, as it were, through the annals of music? I wouldn't say it's had a huge kind of afterlife. People have played with it. One of the people who who did so was, was a Brazilian singer called Seu Jorge, who pops up throughout, people might remember the Wes Anderson film, The Life Aquatic George pops up through the film singing David Bowie songs in Portuguese and he does this with Starman. I think he's sitting on the deck late at night of the boat smoking a cigarette. Helen, that particular version do it for you? Yeah, I really like that. And I like the film. I mean, the film did the same thing. It was taking you back into the early days of sort of underwater photography, underwater exploration, when the colours of everything suddenly shifted. They had those heightened colours. So, yeah, I mean, certainly in the context of the film, I love that version. I love the way that you're comparing the astronaut with the deep sea diver, this person going into this vivid, colourful new world. True then to the song of how Bowie went and yeah. also introduced the, it's the, same the world thing, of colour into the young Cheel's household. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, listeners may not be able to, well, obviously cannot see David, but I can assure you he is sitting here in a spandex jumpsuit right now. <laughs> <laughs> we shall move on now to a related song. Uh, this is a song that Helen wrote about, which is in the book. It has a link to Starman. It is Somewhere Over the Rainbow from the film The Wizard of Oz, sung by Judy Garland. That you dare to dream really do come true. Someday I'll wish upon a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind me. Well, everyone here has gone quite dewy-eyed. Mm. Now, Helen, first of all, could you uh, elucidate for us, please, the link between that song and Starman? Yes. Um, so where the young Judy Garland is singing it in her barnyard in Kansas, waiting for the grey world to turn into this multicoloured world of Oz, she leaps up the octave. It's the first note up the octave. And it was the same thing that David Bowie wanted to do with Starman. He wanted to take us out of dull, grey, 1970s Britain. And he wanted to transport us into a brave new world of bright new colours. So he borrowed the same octave leap from Over the Rainbow. Did he do it as well as Judy Garland? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think Starman is as good a song as Over the Rainbow, but I think he does that fantastic thing of borrowing an emotion, borrowing a mood, and he borrowed that octave leap. And I was reading about the octave leap recently. For a start, the producers of Over the Rainbow were worried about selling the sheet music of Over the Rainbow because they didn't think the average Joe would want to buy it because it was very difficult to sing. And scientifically, it's called the miracle of music, the octave jump. And they've recently discovered that cats and monkeys can recognise that music miracle, whereas children under nine struggle with it. 
really? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's my that's my weird scientific. Fact so that these subject. at these two points um, yeah. somewhere over the rainbow, and then later on with Starman, it yeah. would have been cats and monkeys as well. Cat- they would have been very struck by this. <laughs> 1972, top of the pops. Yeah. Any monkeys or cats tuning and would also in. have they been. Would, they would have been feeling the vibe. But of course, it's about optimism. It's, it's and it's the lyrics of the Over the Rainbow were written by a guy called Yip Harburg, who was a uh, very passionate about uh, liberal values and changing the world. And he saw Over the Rainbow the story as what could be achieved in Roosevelt's America. So he was all about, you know, America just needed to find its heart, its brain and its courage. And Yip Harburg's son says the most important word in the whole song is dare. So it's the dreams that you dare to dream. And so there's something of that courageous octave leap that we can, we can make a brighter future. Now the song itself has now become one of the most famous songs ever written. I mean, it really yeah. sort of, it's extraordinary the America's extent to which... In, to some extent. And uh, just seems to turn up everywhere. I mean, even yeah. so far as the prog rock group Toto. There's <laughs> some theories that they took their name from Dorothy's dog. How did the, how did this song manage to become such a sort of key part of our, of our, you know, our imaginations? When The Wizard of Oz was released in 1939, well, we're in the middle of a Great Depression. And I think it was the film that everybody went to see. It was the film that people's lives were very, very hard. And the author, Yip Harburg, he came from a slum. So his parents were Russian Jewish immigrants. He was the youngest of four of 10 surviving children. Parents worked in a sweatshop. His whole career was about bringing hope to the working man. And so that's what the film did. And I think that's, I mean, it's the American dream. Anyone can make it. Yip Harburg would write songs about women's rights. He wrote the first all-black musical that was turned into a film. He wrote the didn't, first didn't musical they write, that... Um, Brother Can You Spare a Dime? Yeah, as well. so he started out with Brother Can You Spare a Dime, which is the unofficial song of the Roosevelt campaign trail. And Helen, in your column, you quote Yip Harburg. You quote him on the subject of songwriting. Words make you feel a thought, he said. Music makes you feel a feeling. A mm. song makes you feel a thought. Would you care to sort of like explain your thoughts about that? It's just the truth, isn't it? I mean, he had lived all of this. After growing up in a slum, he had been drafted into the First World War that he didn't believe in. He then set out in a world of business. He became shareholder in an electrical appliance company, which tanked in the recession, leaving him in tens of thousands of debt, which he took his lifetime almost to pay back. You know, and he once said, I left the fantasy of business for the hard reality of show business. So he'd lived it and he wanted to make people feel it, but he also wanted to change the world. Which then takes us back to that question that, uh, David, that you asked at the beginning of your column on Starman, whether songs can change the world. I mean, obviously, uh, the invention of printing changed the world. The discovery of penicillin changed the world. But can we really say that something as insubstantial seeming as a song, a sort of three minute song is able to change the world? I think so. I think you can sort of sense a little bit of a tilting of the axis when Starman came out and Over the Rainbow as well. If you're sort of introducing new ideas or new feelings into a culture, I think that in a way is sort of changing the world. You're not sort of saying, you know, it's not like protest songs. I'm not sure about the effectiveness of protest songs. It's a feeling, isn't it? And a notion that's being introduced into the culture. And I think that's that changes things. It changes your heart, doesn't it? I mean... Over the Rainbow was the song that Ariana Grande sang at the end of the Manchester concert. You know, when you want to fight back against the worst things that can happen in the world, when you want to unify an arena full of people with love and hope and 
the the sense that things can get better, that things can improve, then this is the song you choose. It became um, Judy Garland's signature song. And you mention a very interesting detail in your, when you write about it, is that in her last concert in 1969, you describe her as giving a hollow laugh before she sang it. I mean, did the song itself become something, some sort of an anchor for her, something which was actually became too heavy? Yeah, well, I think it was her signature song. And as her life took sadder and sadder turns, I think that she was being wheeled out to sing this song of joy and optimism which was so at odds with her personal state at the time then yes her cynicism just cracked through in that final performance a few months before her overdose and there have obviously been numerous other versions it's turned up in all manner of uh, ways one of which is Ella Fitzgerald yeah that was the song that Gene Wilder wanted to be listening to as he died keeping it merry keeping it merry Ellen (laughs) optimism yeah (laughs) just a step beyond the rest feel that song does justice to or or not to the original oh it's lovely (laughs) it's and what she does as well which is what the song does is it oozes between notes and quite often people do that in octave jumping songs so for example a a later example of someone who jumps the octave would be akabilk on stranger on the shore 1961 and it's that lovely clarinet ooze up the note Mm. up the octave at the beginning and that's what ella fitzgerald does she just trickles over songs doesn't she is there a sense that she's bringing that song into a tradition of uh, black american pop music with its uh, associations with the church gospel music and then you know the search for a better world. And also the civil rights movement, which Yip Harburg was passionately associated with. So yes, absolutely. Another version that we're going to listen to is by the Hawaiian singer, Israel Kamakawole. We So there we have a quite different version Mm. involving the ukulele. Yes, from this lovely, light, fluttering sound coming from a morbidly obese man. It's just beautiful. That's slightly more escapist, I think, than maybe the Garland or the Ella Fitzgerald, who seem like they're trying to drive hope. That's a bit more wistful, isn't it? Mm. I don't know if you feel that. The rainbow feels a little less reachable. How close, David, do you think that song can become to chintz? (laughs) Um, (laughs) The thing that brings it close to it is the the strumming of the ukulele. I think the sort yeah. of slightly jaunty. I think the the vocal delivery, the singing, is beautiful, but it's the ukulele that that sort of drags it sort of a little bit down. Well, we'll move on to another song, which is uh, ingeniously linked to that one, which is one that I wrote about. Another song which is a tribute to uh, American can-do optimism. It's a hard knock life from the 1977 musical Annie. Thank you. 
Well, if the previous song, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, had us looking dewy-eyed, this one had us jaunting about <laughs> in syncopated moves. Right, wow. So if Over the Rainbow is about the American quality of grit, digging deep and soaring high, then that song is all about the great American quality of pluck, isn't it? Pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. I think that's the perfect word there, Helen. And you can almost hear all of these plucked instruments, all of these pizzicato instruments being plucked away in a very merry fashion by the, by the orchestra. It, it's a song which can't help but cheer you up, even though when you look at the lyrics... They turn out to be absolutely dismal. To recap in the film about the orphan Annie in her desolate uh, New York orphanage, this song is sung by her fellow inmates in the orphanage and they're bemoaning their full of sorrow life. Uh, Once a day, don't you want to throw the towel in? They chorus. I mean, this is all the sort of stuff of a Joy Division song or maybe Leonard Cohen at one of of his less happy moments. But nonetheless, the music is irresistibly propulsive and good-natured. And of course, this particular scene, which is accompanied by those wonderful, sort of um, dance routines as the uh, orphans spin around their washing equipment as they go through their drudgery and yeah. turn it into this wonderful uh, choreography. It ends with Annie trying to escape in the laundry basket. There's no throwing the towel in from her. She is not a quitter. <laughs> <laughs> and then the song gets smuggled into more recent popular culture by Jay-Z, who uses it for his Hard Not Life ghetto, <laughs> That's exactly ghetto right. experience. And I was thinking how funny it is that Annie is the girl who brings herself up out of poverty by, you know, by her sheer pluck and there's Jay-Z kind of taking himself mainstream for the first time with this song it's also dealing with his life as a drug dealer I mean he's worked very hard to brand this although he was selling crack to make it on the way up there he is, renowned by his clients of the time as the drug dealer who would also be selling you crack but open the door for you at the bottom of the block of flats (laughs) Gotta eat, stay on my toes. Got a lot of beef, so logically, I pray on my foes. Hustlers still inside of me. And as far as progress, you'd be hard pressed. So yes, there is indeed a hard knock life by an ex-drug dealer, as you put it, mm. Helen, quite correctly. The, Some amazing crate diving by him, but then, I mean, he would have... Well, he came across it, in fact, it turned out he came across this sample being played by a producer who created that sample, who created the beat, and he heard the beat and he really, really wanted it. Oh, and it? And re- reputedly, he paid a sum of money in order to get hold of that beat, but he had to get permission to use it. So he wrote to the uh, composer, Charles Strauss, and the lyricist, Martin Charnin in order to ask permission from them to use it for the song but in order to do so he said in, he wrote basically this Annie-esque letter in which he said he <laughs> loved the musical so much when he was growing up at his hard knock Bedford Stuyvesant school um, but he never got a chance to see it but he absolutely loved it he really wanted to um, use it he really laid it on thick and he sent it off to them and they basically believed this <laughs> <laughs> I mean he did see himself as a bit of an orphan Annie though I mean his dad walked out when he was nine and one of the things that I, I noticed from his book decoded he doesn't give away many details of his personal life but the one thing he recalls in that is his parents fighting for custody of the vinyl collection <laughs> and I, I may well be that the, <laughs> the, the soundtrack to Annie may well have been on there because he mm. did end up producing the remake which came out not so very long ago mm. which was a sort of hip-hop remake of the, of the musical so I think it has actually uh, definitely gripped Jay-Z's imagination the story of the of plucky orphan girl and that film also features a little cameo from Katy Perry Yes, who then herself has gone and adopted It's a Hard Knock Life, which turns up, if you listen closely, which I think we can right now, to the beginning of her mega hit Roar, I think you could hear just a little echo of those orphans. I used to bite my tongue and hold my breath, scared to rock the boat and make a mess. 
So Ludo, here we are again with uh, American themes of empowerment and pluck with Katy Perry. As you say, you can hear the sort of the, the little echoes of It's the Hard Knock Life in there. I noticed when I was looking at this song up, it has a credit of five songwriters, which is an astonishing number. Do they credit um, the song or is there any sampling going on or is it just like an unconscious echo? She acknowledges it now by playing it, when she plays it live, it opens with... It's a hard knock life, okay. which then sort of dissolves into right. raw. So it is acknowledged. There are other echoes in there as well as the uh, Helen Reddy song, I Am Woman, Hear Me Roar. Yeah. Eye of the Tiger. Eye of the as Tiger well, as well, exactly. There's a whole load of empowerment anthems going on there. Mm. The uh, thing about that is I, I sort of feel that there's, there's something optimistic about song, songwriting itself. It seems to me that the way in which songwriters discuss songs they talk about the tonic chord they talk about resolving mm. songs there seems mm. to be something mm. sort of inherently optimistic it seems to me about the song itself that in fact it's quite hard i mean obviously there's lots of gloomy songs but actually songs themselves tend towards the that, positive that optimism in fact it's funny when you mentioned the wichita lineman earlier that's one of the few songs that never resolved back to its tonic chord it's like we leave him up there mm. but in yeah in this case this is katy perry's getting up and getting out there and you wouldn't write a song if you didn't want anyone to hear it in a way so there is some implied optimism in the act of creation isn't yeah. there and there's often a juxtaposition isn't there between the downbeat lyrics but very upbeat music the majority of the songs in the book, of the 50 songs in the Life of a Song book, the majority are American, aren't they? That's right. And we're talking really about an art form which has achieved its its highest level as a, an American cult, popular culture. Yeah. So it yeah. seems that possibly the song and this optimistic spirit in the, in the American temper possibly have met very, you know, the perfectly matched. You know, it goes back to the days of, uh, as Helen was saying, with sheet music when, you know, that sort of democratised the song as well, when it the songs were put back into the hands of ordinary people who could make their own interpretations on them. For the people producing Over the Rainbow, the, how much you would make on the sheet music was a consideration in a way mm. that now even even the number of downloads might not be a financial consideration. You're, look, you're looking at monetizing it through a concert today. It's a hard not life to me, but raises questions about originality and copyism as well. And it seems to me that um, this particular song has been recycled very effectively, mm. that those other versions are really good. And yeah. the original is mm. really good. Whereas it seems to me that the versions that we've heard of uh, Starman and indeed of uh, Somewhere of the Rainbow, well, not so much Ella Fitzgerald, actually, yeah. that's true. But there's a sense in which the song is so powerful that it's very hard to do anything to it other than a sort of m more minor key one like yeah. the Say Georges, for instance. Yeah. Yes, I think you're right. I think some songs are not uncoverable, but they have their originator imprint so heavily on them that it's very hard for listeners to go and get that out of their head when they're listening to any other version. What I mean, that's different sort of when you've got sort of Tim Pan Alley writers. So, for example, you've got the Harburg and Arlem writing somewhere over the rainbow. They, they wrote that for somebody else. They wrote that for other people to take on somewhere. Mm. Whereas when a song is more closely associated mm -hmm. with the star persona, say in the David Bowie case, that was about him. That was about that particular moment in time. That was 1972 top of the pops. It's quite hard for anybody else to do that without making some very strong comment on, on him and their relationship with him in that moment. And can I at this point just canvas opinions upon what makes a good cover? Helen, what do you think is a good cover version? What does the song need to bring to the original? I quite like the ones that have a certain twist. So so I quite like ones like the Say of Georges that do something different with the song, that take the song to a, a different place or a different meaning. There's that dread word, deconstructed, but w w when people sort of... Uh, 
rethink a song or put a new twist on it or put a new angle on like it. Like when, uh, when Tori Amos covers Eminem, you know, yes. <laughs> and and suddenly you're having that flipped from a that sort of male violence flipped into a feminist mm-hmm. perspective. Yeah. I think that can be very interesting. Yeah. And there are famous versions of songs. I mean, one of the ones covered in the book is Alleluia. And if you listen to Leonard Cohen's original, it's kind of clunky and very dated. And then you get... Um, Buckley coming along and totally transforming it into this exquisite sort of hymn. People now, apart from the Alexandra Bourke Bourke version, you know, it's Jeff Buckley's version that people remember. And then, of course, there are songs which can be uh, misunderstood or which can be sort of taken away from their original context, which Mm. applies to the last song that we shall be discussing, which also features in the book, which is Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen. column was written by FT music critic David Honigman. And David, you're going to tell us a bit about it. Bruce Springsteen wrote it as a sort of a... It was basically a song about a a petty criminal who goes to Vietnam and comes back with post-traumatic stress disorder. Lyrically, it's a pretty bleak song, but I think it falls victim to the fact that it's uh, the tune. it's, It's going back to the idea of juxtaposing things. It's a triumphalist song with a bright chords and incredibly uh, upbeat sort of uh, rhythm, as a result of which it's been used or rather abused by politicians, including Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump, as a sort of a, a sort of a convention anthem. They're walking onto the stage and everybody does the fist pumping born in the USA thing. And Springsteen hated that. When Reagan used it during his re-election campaign in 1984, he gave a speech in New Jersey where he said, America's future rests in a thousand dreams inside your hearts. It rests in the message of hope in the songs of a man so many young Americans admire, New Jersey's own Bruce Springsteen. (laughs) Which evidently did horrify Springsteen himself to hear himself being eulogised in that fashion. Helen, do you think the song deserves its fate? It is very pumped up. Yeah, well, you know, I was nine when this song came out and I remember seeing the vinyl sleeves of it, the American flag, the blue jeans. I mean, it superficially, of course, it's it's playing against its own imagery, it's playing against its own sound. So I miss, you know, I don't think I listened to the lyrics when I was nine and I wanted an aspiring indie kid with my henna hair and my Doc Martens, you know, this, this seemed to be a conservative anthem. I can see how it happens and then you, and then you feel like a, a complete dolt when you realise you've missed the you've missed the trick, you've missed the joke. I think it makes it cleverer, you know, I mean, because the, all that fist pumping is, is, is this guy's despair. Mm. It does raise the question of, you know, how many people really listen to the lyrics of songs. If we're talking about songs that change the world, that's got to be a problem. Yes. Mm. <laughs> In this case, it seems to be that the chorus is the problem. I mean, it's mm. so sort of um, blatant that it's very hard to move beyond it. And it seems that yeah. if this song is, to, any way that this song could change the world, it's not going to be in any way that the songwriter intends it to. Yeah, I mean, maybe you should have followed it with some brackets, sort of, I've born in the USA, don't I deserve better? <laughs> <laughs> he did say, as his response to Reagan was, he said he was on tour at the time when Reagan used this. And he said, well, the president was mentioning my name in his speech the other day. And I kind of got to wondering what his favourite album of mine must have been, you know. I don't think it was the Nebraska album. I don't think he's been listening to this one. Nebraska being the, much bleaker album Mm. that he uh, Mm. produced with just himself on a guitar and he then proceeded to play a song from Nebraska very pointedly not the song which Reagan had appropriated 
I think, too, uh, Springsteen subsequently has played kind of a more stripped-back arrangement of the song with just an acoustic guitar, and that sort of lays its lays its bones a little bit more open. I mean, there was a contradiction, I think, to some extent, in the way Springsteen was selling himself. I mean, his amazing new autobiography, I think, lays himself very bare. He talks about male vulnerability. But at that time, in the 80s, he was buying into a certain macho image. I mean, he talks about, you know, working out obsessively, building up those muscles... He was playing into a certain image, which he's has gone on to deconstruct, like David says, he's playing unplugged now. He's talking about depression and all the other lifelong struggles he's had in his book. But at that time, I think he was sending out a conflicted message. There is an expectation that pop and rock stars are kind of liberal, left-leaning. And yet, um, as David Honigman points out in, in his piece on the song, rock and roll is essentially a libertarian activity. It's about sticking it to the man. It's about the rugged individual. In a way, they're quite right-wing values. So there is a contradiction there, I think. Do you find your own uh, opinion towards the song can change as well? I mean, I remember with Born in the USA, I detested that song yeah, me when too, it came yeah. out. It's like the absolute example of uh, stadium rock at its worst. Stomp oh, and the awful. Those chords. big drums whacking yeah. around the heads and then Springsteen yeah. bellowing like a sort of vast wounded bull. I mean, no, it was awful. But <laughs> yeah. now I love it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love the song now. The same journey, yeah. 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 So Born in the USA, as well as uh, having been appropriated by Reagan, then turned up in a rather unusual setting six years later when it was um, used by the rap group Two Live Crew in a very pointed fashion. This song, which was released in 1990, followed the uh, banning of their album As Nasty As They Wanna Be in the state of Florida, and it was banned for purportedly being obscene. And their response was this song, banned in the USA. They got permission from Springsteen to use the sample of the song. And this was a freedom of speech defence, First Amendment, in which they assert their right to be able to say what they want. And it was, uh, interestingly, this song was the first to carry the parental advisory sticker, (laughs) which has now spread like a rash over songs. Did did it merit a parental advisory sticker? Do, Do we know? Well, in one sense, I suppose it did merit it in so much as it was taking on that rock and roll tradition you just mentioned David mm. of sticking it to the man mm. rap music in many ways took over that in the in the 90s yeah. and became something which was looked upon as dangerous I mean it carried with it lots of racially uh, freighted anxieties mm. but basically the idea of music existing to shock your parents mm. was taken on board by rap music yeah but uh, so Helen you didn't like Born in the USA when it first came out and like me have come yeah, around to uh, it yeah. what do you think of it turning up here I quite like that I, I like people taking a, a tune and running with it and yeah confronting the idea of I mean the song is about what it means to be American so this is then picking that up and running with it it's like you know freedom of speech first amendment you know, it's, it's what it's the right we should have and I like I like the way they've claimed it and taken it further I think too maybe there's something to be said here about 
the way the art of songwriting has changed in the in the sense that sampling has introduced a new element and old school traditionalists kind of look at this and say well it's not sort of proper songwriting <laughs> going back to the sort of classic era of the singer the lonely tortured singer songwriter but these days it, as we mentioned about the Katy Perry song there are sometimes four five or six people credited with writing these songs so it's a different process these days isn't and, it and I don't think it was ever pure was it I mean there's quite a lot of over the rainbow in Dvorak's Ode to the Moon so mm. pop music was, was always borrowed from classical music and jazz mm. and that's probably goes back deeper into traditions and oral songs. I, we've always done it. We've I agree. Always I mean, I feel very impatient borrowed. with complaints that samples yeah. are just a sort of lazy form of recycling or theft, which mm. does, I mean, obviously they can be used lazily, but it seems to me that, uh, I mean, we can sometimes forget that pop music is meant for young people and that it constantly, yeah. its audience <laughs> is constantly being replenished by new recruits of uh, said youngsters. And for them, what are they going to care about the original version of Starman or the fact that, you know, it's a <laughs> hard knock life was, turns out to have been done long before Katy Perry ever did Raw. And it's exciting as well I think you know and I certainly think with the invention of the internet you know there's, there's a certain kind of young geek who can really enjoy tracing the trail back you know discovering that Eminem sampling Labby Sifri go back and discover Labby Sifri you've got a bit of cool there you might you know then you can rework that yourself I, I think it's part it of the excitement se- it's all available online now it mm. seems to me that there are far too many songs as well I mean I don't know, you know <laughs> the, of the 50 songs that we have in, in the Life of a Song book we have a 50 you know classics basically yeah. and I mean if you're a songwriter what are you adding to that I mean pinch something from them <laughs> turn them into new things don't bother trying to write something new it's not going to work I mean every song that I've written about in this column I've, I've gone back and found something older than I expected to find Although, of course, it's all original journalism. (laughs) Of course, yes. (laughs) And on that note, it remains for me to thank my guests today, Helen and David. Thank you very much for your contributions. It's been an adventure. And I hope that you've enjoyed the podcast and I heartily recommend to you The Life of a Song in its book form, which will be available in all good bookshops and indeed online stores. And it's available in the UK on uh, September the 21st and in the US on October the 31st. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast was produced by Griselda Murray-Brown.